Last week we enjoyed looking at the victorious return of Christ as he arrived riding riding on a white horse to defeat the Antichrist and the rebellious army that the Antichrist put together at the end of the tribulation. We, We read the record of John's vision where Christ defeats all the enemies that are aligned against him simply by opening his mouth and using his words, he slays his opponents. We saw the Antichrist and the false prophet gathered up and thrown into the lake of fire while the assembled army was slain. And as we culminate those events, events we essentially bring the, the seven years of tribulation that we've been examining for most of this series through the book of Revelation, we bring that to a close. From chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, John's vision has been dealing with this one period of, of time, detailing how God's divine judgment would fall after humanity has, has finished its rebellion, how divine punishment would fall, and how the Savior would return, that the time of judgment is now complete, with Christ delivering that, that final blow at, at the Battle of Armageddon. Of course, as I've mentioned numerous times, we believe that the second coming of Christ is a multi-stage event that, that begins actually with the rapture of the church before the seven years begin, just prior to the tribulation. That, that means that during those seven years we've been looking at, we, the church, will not be present. We, in fact, we saw ourselves, we got a glimpse of ourselves last week when the army was riding behind Christ, the army of saints, will form much of that army that, that is returning for that battle. While the earth is under judgment, the, the church, the, the bride of Christ, has enjoyed the marriage to, to the Lamb. That's what we've been occupied with. Well, our chapter this evening picks up immediately following the events of chapter 19. As we move through the tribulation judgments, you may recall there were times where we were moving through that, that seven-year time period, and then we'd hit a pause and we'd have this interlude where there'd be some background information provided, and we'd step out of time, learn something that happened maybe in history past, maybe that was coming yet in the future, something that provided a larger context, a backstory on the events, and then once we had that, then the timeline would move forward again. Well, that has all finished now. Those pauses are done. There's no further interludes that will interrupt the the flow of events. We've completed the seven years and we're going to move forward from now. The the scenes that John receives from now through the end of the book flow in a a steady sequence forward. And and to say the least, as they move forward, speed increases greatly. It took most of the book of Revelation to cover that seven-year period of tribulation. Now, tonight, we're going to rapidly cover a thousand years in our span. So to say we move forward quickly is an understatement. If you've ever watched that old movie, The the Time Machine, I feel like we're on the time machine right at the time when it's moving at maximum speed. We'll, We'll get just a little glimpse at the beginning when we're picking up speed, and we'll get a little glimpse at the end when the time machine's slowing down, but for the thousand years, most of it, that time in between is moving so fast we don't see anything. We just fly through that trip. We have this thousand years really covered in the first ten verses of our chapter. In in the ten verses of chapter 20 that that begin that chapter, we cover a thousand years. A thousand years that we call the millennial kingdom. Many of the Old Testament prophecies predict that, that there will be a time when the Messiah will physically reign upon the earth. 
He will sit on the throne of David, and he will rule over the nation of Israel, but nation of Israel will be really over the nations of the world. And from Jerusalem, the Messiah will reign over the world. Israel will enjoy that worldwide dominance. Now, the New Testament, of course, makes it clear that, that Christ is the promised Messiah. We know that. The New Testament also helps us understand that, that we can see Christ has clearly never reigned as king while he was here in his first time. The, the people thought maybe that he would when, when he came into Jerusalem for his final week. That's why they, they hailed his arrival and, 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 and rejoiced at the coming of the, the king. But that wasn't his purpose when he came, first of all, he, the first time. He came to die for sins. So Christ has never reigned as king. So we have to either conclude that his reign is still coming or that somehow God never literally meant what the Old Testament states in so many places. We have to conclude that the Jews completely misunderstood what God was saying when they, they understood that God was promising they would have a Messiah that would reign over the earth. Well, those are options. Either Christ has yet to do this or the Jews misunderstood so much of the Old Testament prophecy well, as dispensationalists, we adopt the first option. We, we understand that God meant what he said. He, we are going to take God literally on all of his promises, the promises they made to Israel that, that their Messiah will reign. We expect then that that means Christ will come again and that when he comes again, he will serve as the messianic king of Israel. He will rule from Jerusalem over the world. We anticipate that time to come in the future. And furthermore, because of this chapter in Revelation, we expect that time when he rules will be 1,000 years, a literal period of time of 1,000 years. We, we expect that because in the verses we'll read here in just a, a few minutes, six times John specifically indicates that these events will take 1,000 years. He's very specific about that duration, 1,000 years. We've had a lot of numbers in this book. Some of the numbers, at, sometimes John says they point to other things, they're, they're symbolic, but, but the numbers have always been literal numbers. There's no reason to expect these 6,000 to be, or these six occurrences of 1,000 to be any different. It's a literal number that John specifies six times 1,000 years he will reign. So let's begin looking at this millennial kingdom, this 1,000-year reign of Christ. Let's begin looking at what's been revealed to John. And in the first three verses, the, the things begin in this passage with the binding of Satan. That's where we start, the binding of Satan. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would never deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. These verses begin the, the brief record that, that John gives us of this millennial kingdom. Some, some things that happen right at the beginning. Most of what we know about Christ's reign during this, this thousand-year period comes from other places in Scripture. Old Testament specifically, as, as it focuses on his, his reign when, he, when the Messiah will ascend the throne of David. John's vision really focuses on the doom of Satan. 
That's his impetus. The, the beast or the Antichrist, as we've mainly referred to him, along with the false prophet and the, their followers, followers, they've all been dealt with. The, the, the beast or the Antichrist has been thrown in the lake of fire. The false prophet has been thrown in the lake of fire. Their, their followers were slain largely. But Satan, the, the one that's driving all of this rebellion that we've been looking at, and frankly, the one who's been driving all of human rebellion throughout human history, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the Battle of Armageddon, Satan has remained largely behind the scenes. Even though Satan's provided all the motivation and all the power for the rebellion against God, Satan himself, to this point, has been untouched by the return of Christ. We really should not be surprised that that changes, that that will not last. We, we've been told all the way back in chapter 12 when we had that brief excursus of the history of the dragon in that chapter. In that chapter, if you go back there, John saw Satan expelled from heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation and, and he was told, or we were told, that his time was short to, to vent his, his, his wrath, Satan's wrath, against God's image bearers. Well, now that time's come to an end. So, the time's come to an end, so an angel is quickly dispatched from heaven with authority to bind Satan and to confine him into the abyss. Earlier in the tribulation, we, we had an angel that had keys to open the abyss and some demonic horde that had been confined there were released upon the earth. From, from what you may recall back in that time, the, the abyss is apparently a section or a compartment of Hades that is where these demons had been confined. Well, now it's Satan who is going to be confined there. He's going to be confined for 1,000 years while Christ reigns on the earth. Even though Satan has enormous power, when this angel comes with God's authority, Satan cannot resist. He's bound and thrown into the abyss. Even though Satan's the we often think of as the mightiest of angels. When an angel comes under God's authority, Satan cannot stand against him. He's bound, he's thrown into the abyss, and then that place is shut up and sealed. We have the chaining, the imprisoning, the sealing. This emphasizes that Satan will remain helpless during this thousand-year period. There's an emphatic guarantee that his activities of deceiving the nations of the earth will not be able to be carried on during the thousand years of Christ's reign. He's powerless during this time. At the same time, we're told in verse 3 that Satan will be released again for just a short time. We, we don't know how long that is. It's, we're told a short time at the end of the thousand years. In fact, John is told that this must occur. Why this must happen is, is not revealed to us. It's one of those things that's hidden in the divine will of God. Satan must be released, but only God at this time knows why. God has determined that Satan must have this, this opportunity again to deceive nations as part of God's eternal plan to bring maximum glory to himself but he doesn't explain to us why. It's possible that, that during the thousand years when Christ is on the earth here, that he himself will reveal more why Satan has to be released at the end. Um, Christ will be speaking from the throne, and every word out of his mouth will be divine revelation, so he might fill in some gaps, or he might not. Without any further information, all we can do is speculate at this point. 
it's possible that Satan has to be released so that that we're able to see that the, the sinful human heart remains innately rebellious even without a spiritual instigator to, to motivate rebellion, that the human heart is still the same. You have a, a perfect king sitting on a throne, running a perfect government with perfect rule, and yet the human heart is still innately rebellious. That might be why Satan is released. We, I don't know. What we do know is that after Satan is bound, we move on to what John is told is called the first resurrection. Look at verse 4 as we look at the first resurrection. Then I saw. Notice each of these times I'm, I'm stopping, we have these words, I saw. John's vision is shifting. He's, he's moving around. He's seeing different things. Then I saw, after he sees Satan in, in, imprisoned, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw so the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, or, and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So John's attention here is, is shifted from, from the capture and the confinement of Satan to these thrones. He, he sees thrones, and it's not explicitly stated here in the text, but most likely it's us, those who, who were in the army behind Satan who and he is now sitting on the thrones that John sees that the church would rule there. Immediately after the thrones are filled, though, what John does see is saints who were martyred during the, the tribulation during, for their faith, those who gave up their lives in opposition to the Antichrist, in, in faithful submission to Christ, those saints are raised back to life. And with their resurrection, that completes what John calls the first resurrection. Based on, on the way John distinguishes this from the rest who come to life after the millennial kingdom, it is clear that, that the first resurrection refers to the resurrection of believers or, or to saints. All believers will participate in Christ's millennial kingdom. Unbelievers will not enter it. Now, like the return of Christ, this, this first resurrection has several stages and and I won't spend a lot of time on that, but I will list there's at least four events that make up the, the first resurrection. And, and we'll throw those up on the screen here, along with some of the verses that, that mention these separate, um, these separate events, just so you can kind of get an idea of how they work. Okay, you can, hopefully you can see, I've picked bad colors today. Uh, I went with suggested colors that Microsoft gave me. I know this morning they were bad, and tonight they're not much better. I apologize for that. Anyway, the, the, the different events that make up the first resurrection, we have, first of all, church, church saints. They're, they're resurrected at the rapture. We, we know that when Christ returns, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, they, they tell us that the dead will rise and then those who are alive will be caught up together with them at the rapture. So we have the resurrection of the church saints when the, the dead arise. We then, at the midpoint of the tribulation, we have the two witnesses. Remember, we saw them in Revelation chapter 11, 
these witnesses that had been a, a thorn in the backside of, of the Antichrist, they were killed by the Antichrist, and, and all the world was rejoicing, but then God brought them back to life. We had the resurrection of them. Then we had the Old Testament saints at, at the end of the tribulation. They're not mentioned at all in Revelation here, but Daniel chapter 12 and Isaiah 26 make it clear that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the tribulations and be part of the millennial kingdom. They're the ones invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb that, that will come after Christ returns, and, and they'll celebrate as they enter the millennial kingdom with Messiah. And then, lastly, we have what we just saw, the tribulation martyrs. They complete the first resurrection. They also are resurrected here at the end of the tribulation. As I've said throughout this study, we, we believe the rapture of the church, that includes the, the New Testament believers, that, that comes before. We have the, the, the two witnesses at the midpoint. Uh, we have the Old Testament saints. They're, they've not been in the scope of what John has seen for his vision. John's vision has really been for the church. He's, he's been given this so he could communicate to the church, but, but Old Testament saints will be part of it. And then you have these tribulation martyrs. And, and when you put these four events together collectively, they, are, they will ensure that all believers in human history to this point in time, to the end of tribulation, all believers have been resurrected. That's the first resurrection. So going back to our text, John specifically calls all who participate in the first resurrection blessed. As we learned this morning, that means they are favored by God. God's divine favor is upon all of these because these are all who have been believers throughout human history. They will all enjoy and participate in the thousand years of Christ reigning physically upon the earth. The first, the first resurrection wraps up the, the start of the millennium. We're, we're at the beginning now, and now, as I said, that time machine that we're riding it gets to full speed, and we just flash forward. John jumps right from the beginning of the millennium to the very end of the thousand years. And with the end, we encounter the final rebellion, the final rebellion of, of mankind. Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are complete, completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As noted a few minutes ago, verse 3 told us that Satan must be released. Well, now when the thousand years are complete, he is released. And, and immediately he, he is able once again to deceive these nations that have, have grown up during this thousand year period. And from that gather a rebellion from the corners of the earth to rise up against the king on his throne, Christ. Now it's important that, that we understand that none of the saints involved in the first resurrection will participate in the rebellion. Those who are raised from the dead, they're in glorified bodies. They are, they are no longer tempted by sin. Still, by, by the end of the, the thousand years, there will be a huge population on the earth. 
we have many believers that will survive the tribulation and they will enter the, the millennial kingdom in, in their physical bodies, in their natural bodies, and these believers will marry and they will procreate. Furthermore, as I already said, this will be an ideal environment. Christ will be ruling globally, and so it will be an ideal environment. The Old Testament tells us there will be very little death. Well, as you know, I come from a math background, so playing with a little math this week, even if as few as a thousand believers, and I've got to believe there'd be more than that that survived the tribulation, but even if you enter with a population of a thousand believers, the global population at the end of a thousand years with little death could very, very quickly exceed our current global population. Probably vastly exceed our current global population. Growth, population growth happens very quickly. It's an exponential growth. So there will be a huge population on the earth at the end of these thousand years, and Satan, when he's released, will instigate rebellion among these naturally born millennial citizens, in these millennial kingdom citizens, he will foment rebellion and gather an army that will then march on Jerusalem where Christ is sitting on his throne. There's plenty of people for Satan to deceive. What's amazing, somewhat, is that even when people have a perfect king, we have Jesus on the throne, and, and for their entire life, and their lives will be long, death will be rare, for their entire lives, they've seen a, a, a perfect king giving perfect righteous rule. Even in that in situation, with that kind of environment, their innate sinful nature will respond to these deceptions that, that Satan offers as soon as they hear his siren call of, of lies. That's human depravity. Unless God acts, unless God mercifully regenerates, it, it doesn't matter how perfect conditions are. Mankind will rebel against God. And once more, history quickly repeats itself. Satan raises up this massive worldwide army that, that gathers against Christ. They approach Jerusalem, his capital, in, 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 in intending to make war against him. As Christ's saints are camped out around the capital, prepared to defend him. But the battle never actually occurs. Those in rebellion against Christ never get the chance. God simply rains fire down from heaven on them and they are destroyed. And Satan is captured again. We're not told how he's captured, we're simply told he's captured. And this time he's thrown into a lake of fire. Rather than bound in the abyss, his function is finished. He is thrown into the lake of fire where he joins the beast and the false prophet who are already there. They've already been there for a thousand years. He joins them. And his punishment, like theirs, will go on for all eternity. Now, before we move on, I do want to observe that hell is eternal. There, there's no soul sleep, as some false teaching uh, holds, that after a time, we will, those in, in hell will simply cease to exist. Soul sleep, they call it. No, there, there is eternal torment. There, there's no soul annihilation, that, that they're just winked out of existence. That's, that's another slightly different false teaching. Satan joins the beast and the false prophet who's already been there for a thousand years and he begins his day and night torment that will likewise last forever and ever. That is hell. Torment forever and ever. An eternal punishment. It is awful. It is not fully comprehensible. 
It is not fully imaginable, but it is real, and it is just, it is righteous, and it is eternally those things. Hell is real. Having quickly sketched the the beginning and the end of the millennial kingdom, flashing through these thousand years, John receives further visions that, that will bring human history to a close. The next vision is the great white throne. The great, great white throne. I, I'm calling this the great white throne because that's what John sees. And I say these further visions bring human history to a close because the current heavens and the current earth, they do not survive what comes next. Let's look at what John has shown in, in verse 11. The first thing that grabs his attention. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. John sees this throne, and this throne must be located outside our current concept of of space, because as this throne arrives, heaven and earth flee. It's the arrival of the one who sits on the throne that causes earth and heaven flee, not the throne itself. It's the power of the throne's occupant. When, When Christ comes in his full glory, this creation is simply dissolved. John does not tell us who the occupant of the throne is, but Jesus did say in John 5.25 that the Father has given all the judgment to the Son. That's why we know this is Christ. After he rules for a thousand years, he now sits on this throne. We can understand this is Jesus arriving as judge, the, the one before whom this world that Jesus has held together through all the millennia from creation on flees. When Jesus relinquishes his control that holds the world together, that power that keeps it united, it just flees from him. Having watched the the judge arrive on the throne, John immediately has his attention drawn to the action that commences before the throne as we have the judgment. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Remember, all the dead were not raised at the first resurrection. Only the, all the believers were raised in the first resurrection. Those who were killed in the final rebellion now are raised along with all those who were not raised in the first resurrection. In other words, all those who have been in rebellion against Christ are raised to life to face the judge. We're told specifically that people's social status in life will have no bearing upon the judgment. Great and small, they're judged alike. They both stand before the same judge. What does have a bearing is the deeds that are conducted during life. John sees this set of books open. These are often called the books of deeds because they're a record of what a person has done. Now, it's likely the books are actually symbolic for God's omniscient knowledge. God's omniscient, he doesn't need a set of books. Literally, it would be scrolls in in the original language. We think of books, maybe you think of database today in a computer. It's 
likely a metaphor that God's omniscient. He, what he's saying is he knows what's been done. All, all that person has done, and the point being made through this metaphor is that people will stand before Christ and be judged for their deeds. There is another book besides the book of deeds, the, the books of deeds. Um, there's another book, and that other book is spied by John as well. It's the book of life. The, the book of life is mentioned many times in Scripture. The book of life is a book that throughout Scripture lists all those who are believers, have accepted Christ as their Savior. It's a record of those for whom Christ died, who, who have his righteous deeds applied to their account. You see, the, the judgment of every person ultimately is based on deeds performed. The, the only question is whose deeds will be considered. Will it be the deeds of Christ or will it be the person's own deeds? If the person accepts the work of Christ, specifically the, the cross work substitution of Christ for their sins, then Christ's deeds, his righteousness, his righteous acts, that's the basis upon which a person is judged. And because Christ is righteous, the person is judged righteous. Christ is substituted. By, by contrast, if a person refuses to accept Jesus as his or her substitute, the only deeds which he or she may be judged by is his or her own. own. There's nothing else. And that's what's going on in our text. The book of life is there to demonstrate that none of the people standing before the throne have their name listed in the book of life. They are not in the book of life, so they must be judged by their own deeds as listed in the other books. Verse 15 makes it clear in every single case, when the judgment hinges on a person's own deeds, the end result is the same, is consignment for all eternity to the lake of fire. None are found righteous through their own deeds. All receive eternal punishment. And John says, this is the second death. This chapter is really where the saying comes from, once born, die, die twice, born twice, die once. These people were only born once. They never accepted their, the second birth. They were never regenerated. They never accepted Christ. They were not born again. So they will die twice. They will experience the second death. Once the judgment is complete, John sees that death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. They've fulfilled their purpose in this creation. Death is an element of this creation. Hades was that temporal holding place, that temporary place for the dead. They're no longer needed as, as they're connected to sin. And, and along with this creation fleeing away, they, they are no longer needed either. And they meet their final doom in the lake of fire alongside the sinners that they worked with. Now, before I move on, I thought it might be helpful to, to give a, a summary of the various judgments that the Bible lists, a little bit like we did a few minutes ago with the first resurrection. There are seven different judgments listed in Scripture with an eighth judgment that we can anticipate. So here's the judgments that we have, and we'll just throw them up for you again. Hopefully you can make it out on the screen. We have the church. We have Old Testament saints, we have tribulation martyrs, we have living Israel, we have Gentile nations, we have the unsaved, we have millennial saints and fallen angels. I've mentioned the Bema Seat before, that's what the judgment of the church is often called, that, that will happen after the, the rapture, during the, the tribulation time frame. That judgment is specifically a judgment of reward. We're rewarded for our service to Christ. That, that comes in heaven before the, the marriage of the church to the Lamb 
is this reward judgment. The, the judgment of the Old Testament saints, um, the, the saints seem to have a, a comparable judgment to the, the Bema Seat judgment, but it's a judgment that comes after the tribulation according to Daniel chapter 12. It's a reward judgment. They're rewarded after resurrection. At the very least, we know they're rewarded with entrance into the millennial kingdom and an invitation to the married supper of the Lamb. They're blessed for that reason alone. They're resurrected and that judgment occurs as they're granted entrance to the millennial kingdom with honored positions. Coming out of the tribulation, we also have some living people living people from both Israel and Gentile nations. Oh, I, I skipped over the tribulation martyrs, sorry. Um, the tribulation martyrs are also resurrected in the same time frame when the Old Testament saints. They're, that's when they were resurrected, so their judgment will occur at the same time. And, uh, again, a, a, res, a judgment of reward is their granted entrance to the, the millennial kingdom. So, we also have, as I said, the living people coming out of Israel, Israel and Gentile nations both. Both the Israelites and Gentiles will individually be judged as individual people, not as nations, and they're not as groups of people. They're individually. Believers in Jesus Christ will enter the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. Unbelievers will be separated out and denied entrance. The, the sheep are separated from the goats, the, the wheat from the tares. So they're, they're separated and... and in denied entrance. These, the unbelievers, they're separated out. They're the ones who survived the Battle of Armageddon. Pre- presumably, there will be people that are not of military capability. Um, most likely, they'll be slain as part of their judgment before Christ at this time. And we, we don't know the details of that, but we know they're separated out. And they don't receive entrance into the Millennial Kingdom, so the only place they could go is to Hades. So, Likely their, their punishment for their rebellion against Christ during the tribulation as unbelievers, Israelites are Gentiles, their unbelievers will be death. Um, now, I didn't mention this earlier, but if you compare all the prophetic passages in Daniel and Revelation, there appears to be a 75-day gap between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. There seems to be this gap in during this gap is when Christ will conduct these judgments. He'll, he'll do a number of organizational activities to, to set himself up as king. He comes as a conquering general, if you will, leading his army. But then to set up his kingdom, there, there are some organizational things that will take place. Some of these is the conquering general will judge those who were in rebellion against him. So we have these activities in that gap of 75 days. So we've just looked at the judgment of the unsaved, the great white throne judgment from all eras of, of church history. So from a logical standpoint, that only leaves those born during the millennium who accept Jesus as their Lord and King rather than rebel against him. Presumably, there will be some. We have, as I said, population explodes during this time frame. There's millions of people by the end of of the tribulation, or I mean the millennial kingdom, billions even, presumably they will not all follow Satan's deceptions and rebel. Presumably there will be some that accept Christ, and assuming there is, there will then logically have to be a, a judgment for them similar to the judgment that all the other saints have had throughout history. A, a judgment of rewards. 
But to this point, nothing's been revealed about that. Uh, again, of course, Christ will have a thousand years where he's sitting on the throne. He could have plenty of time in that thousand years to give revelation about how people will be rewarded for their faithfulness to him. But that's the eighth judgment, though the one that I said we can anticipate. There's seven that are revealed in our scripture already. There's this eighth one that logically we can expect would occur. The final judgment the, is the judgment of fallen angels that has to occur. Jude 6 the, those that we call now demons. Jude 6 alludes to this judgment when Jude writes, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he being the Father, is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now in Jude, that's a reference to a special group of angels, those who apparently were so vile that God bound them at some time in history to hinder any further activity from them. They're held off for a time of judgment, but the fact that they're held off for that future judgment suggests there's a time when all demons will face judgment. Logically, it would seem that that might uh, occur in conjunction with the great white throne, but Scripture is silent. It might be at the end of the millennium as well that that they are held in judgment, uh, held out, and when Satan comes out, they once again serve as his minions at the end of the millennium. We don't know. We just know that there is a time of judgment coming for the demons. We, we don't need to concern ourselves with the judgment facing demons, though. Our concern is with the judgment facing men. Men are the objects of the gospel we carry. Men and women, people, are, are the ones that we are g- given instructions by God to minister, minister to. Fallen angels, demons, they're, they're fixed in their state already. There is no redemption for them. So our concern is not when that judgment will occur. Well, that ends this quick excursion, if you will, into the various judgments as well as this quick understanding of what happens at that great white throne when all the unbelievers of, of history are brought before Christ, found guilty, and consigned to eternity in the lake of fire. So as we conclude this evening, let, let me once again challenge us about how human history is going to end. Countless men and women are going to spend all eternity in torment because they've rebelled against God in this life. There, there is no second chance. There, there's only agony forever and ever. Let, let's be mindful that the same Bible that, that reveals this eternal punishment to us has told us that, that we are the ones who have a duty to warn people that this judgment is coming. We've been given the, the message that if they accept it, saves people from this fate. The, the message that there is a righteous substitute, the very one that those who rebel against will stand before in judgment, he has already died in their place. They, they don't need to face the second death that, that is before them because Jesus died on the cross. Now, we know only God can, can, can break the heart of rebellion so that people accept the message, but, but God has given us the job of communicating the message. As we go through this coming week, I, I urge you to look at the people around you, the, the people you interact with, and, and see people who are going to spend eternity somewhere. Every person you look at this week will spend eternity somewhere. Many of them, at the moment you lay eyes upon them, are destined to spend eternity in hell, in the lake of fire. 
they're destined for that unless they hear and respond to the gospel message. You and I are not responsible for their response, but you and I are responsible for ensuring that they hear the message. So tonight, let, let's recognize as we, we spend this time looking at the, the coming judgment, let's recognize that the coming judgment should motivate our gospel witness. It should motivate our gospel witness. Remember, John was given this message to the church, the church who has been given the mission by God to carry forth the, the, the message of Jesus Christ. I, I believe there's a reason we did not see details called out about the millennial kingdom for the nation of Israel, when the reality is during the millennial kingdom, God's program focuses on the nation of Israel. That revelation has been given in the Old Testament. John was given information for the New Testament church. The New Testament church that's specifically given the mission of communicating the warning of eternal damnation. This coming judgment should motivate our gospel witness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed motivate us here tonight as we contemplate the, the sobering reality that an eternity of, of torment, an eternity of, of punishment and judgment awaits those who rebel against you. Father, we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope to avoid that destiny. And you have called upon us to communicate that to those around us. Father, we know that as we communicate it, you will ensure that it falls on the ears of those that you have elected to respond. We know that as we communicate it, your spirit is powerful and will take that message and apply it to the hearts of those that you are drawing to yourself. As we communicate it, we will be able to see and rejoice in souls that are saved from eternal damnation. But we only see this as we're faithful to the message that you've given us to, to share. So I pray that you would cause us to contemplate the, the reality of what lies ahead for those who do not know Christ. And may it spur us on to lovingly share Christ's word with others. We pray this in his name. Amen.